0: Starting at verse 15, reading down through verse 17. Zephaniah three fifteen. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, Let not thine hands be slack. The Lord, thy God, in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these precious promises of the gospel. We thank you that you are a gracious and a merciful God that you have compassion upon your people and dwell in their midst so that we may see no evil. Have mercy upon us. Teach us to set our hope in thee, the Lord our God. Encourage and bless us in this time of meditation upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're continuing in our study of the book of Zephaniah, most precious book. A book in which the Lord gives us the judgments threatened against His people, against those who are half reformed, as we saw in chapter 1, calling them to repentance, as we saw in chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we saw that this wicked nation would not receive correction. They needed to be teachable to conform themselves to God's true religion and worship, and they refused. Then in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 3, Surely thou wilt fear me. We saw the importance of hearing the words of God given through his prophets and holy apostles. Verses 8 through 10, we saw a pure language on how believers' doctrinal transformation, a new lip that God gives them, or language, how that ought to produce the praise of God, the worship of God according to his will. We also saw our duty to shoulder the worship of God together under one yoke together as his people, to encourage one another unto love and to provoke unto good works. Last week, from verses 11 through 14, we saw a poor and afflicted people, or how we must not trust in the means of grace, but rather the God who has instituted those means. We saw how afflictions focus our attention on God himself rather than on ourselves. We also saw this in Deuteronomy 8. God humbled them through their afflictions and sufferings. So God humbles us through our afflictions and sufferings. We saw how God's word becomes more precious to us in those times. Remember, that's how God humbled them, so that they would hear every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God and live upon it. We saw the duty of speaking truth, the need to mortify a deceitful tongue, And finally, we saw the joy and rejoicing of the gospel as a merry message, as a delightful doctrine, and how God's grace and provision for us casts out fear, lying, and self-seeking since we trust in the Lord as our shepherd and not ourselves. Now, verse 15, let's read again. "'The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. "'He hath cast out thine enemy.'" The king of Israel, even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. Let me make just a brief comment about the prophets and the way that they speak. In the context of Zephaniah, he's talking about the enemy, the Chaldean. But you'll notice he doesn't mention the Chaldean in this passage. And often this is true in the prophets. They rise above their contemporary circumstances by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they speak so that their words can be applicable to all ages of Christian experience. Here, these words, as we will see, are the essence and heart of the gospel. First he says, "'The Lord hath taken away thy judgments,' literally, "'hath taken away emphatically Jehovah thy judgments.'" Now this word take away means to turn away or turn something aside from its course. In 1 Samuel 28 verse 3, we read that Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits. It's the same verb. He put them out of the land. They had their course of living there in the land. He said, no, you get out of here. He turned them away, took them away. He put them away. Now, at the end of 2 Kings, it says in chapter 17, verse 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. There's the idea. Same exact word. He took them out like Saul put away those that had familiar spirits, like the Lord hath taken away their judgments. He removed them. He turned them from their course. He put them away. The Westminster Annotations note, the punishments and visitations for thy sins. Those are the judgments. And consequently, thy sins, the cause of them. What caused God to judge them? Their sins. So if he put away the judgments, guess what else he put away? The sins that brought the judgments. The gospel, then I note, concerns the satisfaction of God's justice by removing sins from us and placing them upon a substitute. He puts away our sins by laying our iniquities on Christ. He turns justice from its natural course, where it flows to the sinner, to a supernatural and gracious path, diverting that wrath of God to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how God took away our judgments. That's how he turned them aside, put them away, removed them from us. Would you have justice to take its natural course? You know how a stream goes right in its course, doesn't it? Rivers flow right in the bed of the river. Do you want that river to be diverted away from you? Then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you will receive the wages of sin, which is death. If you would not have that death and judgment, I urge you to flee to Jesus Christ, to lay hold on his blood, where he shed it on the cross on Calvary's hill. And if you have done so, rejoice in God's putting away your sins, just as surely as Saul put away the witches, so God put away our sins. Rejoice! Rejoice! God has removed your sins and the consequent judgments from you just as much as he removed Israel from the land. He goes on. He hath cast out thine enemy. Again, hath cast out emphatically thine enemy or out-faced him. It comes from the Hebrew word for the face. He took their face and turned it out. Cast them out of your presence He turned them away he banished them so to speak your enemy those who hate you those who would destroy you they are cast out please open to the gospel of John page 1081 where our Lord refers to this very thing 1081 John chapter 12 starting there at verse 27 Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. How is it? that the enemy of mankind was cast out? How is it that Satan was cast out who would destroy us? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? I will be lifted up from the earth. God will glorify his name in the forgiveness of sins by the satisfaction of his justice. This is the gospel. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, you may read at your leisure. There we see the devil himself is cast out and chained so that he may no longer deceive the nations. He hath cast out thine enemy, he says. Please turn back to page 944 to Zephaniah three fifteen. 944. Four. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the King of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. It's a very emphatic passage here. The sin and judgment is turned aside, imputed to Christ our Lord. The course of justice goes away from you and is turned on him. Your enemy has been cast out. And then what happens? God dwells with us. The King Of Israel comes and is with his people. God dwells among us again through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please open to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, just a few pages over. 952, page 952, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet by inspiration says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, this is talking about none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, page 985 of your pew Bibles. Starting there at verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, they sent Jesus to disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them. And straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the full of an ass. Now v- down in verse 9. And multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Save now, Lord. That's what that means, Hosanna. Come and save us. You've sent the Son of David, the King of Israel. He's come to us as the prophets had foretold. Who is this King of Israel? None other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John 1, 47 through 49, you may read. There, our Lord is referred to as the King of Israel by his disciple, Nathan or Nathaniel Our Lord Jesus Christ is the king of Israel he is Jehovah he dwells among us Emmanuel means God with us God is among us in the midst of us Calvin notes God is said to be in the midst of us when he testifies that we live under his guardianship and protection That's what kings do. They guard and protect their people. They fight and destroy their adversaries. They build up walls to protect them from adversaries. That's what kings do. Our Lord Jesus Christ guards us. He protects us. He brings us to everlasting life. He is our shepherd who feeds us. And he is our king who brings us to his house forevermore. I note then, Jesus Christ is the King of Israel. He restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. His presence among his people was foretold by the prophets. It was purchased for us by his casting out our sins and judgments. It was guarded for us by his casting out the prince of this world. That's how Christ is a king. We tend to divide Christ's offices, prophet, priest, and king, and rightly so, because the scriptures recognize those. But also you'll note that they also blend together. Sometimes when Jesus is offering himself as a sacrifice for sin, as a priest, he is conquering at the same time as a king. He is providing salvation for his people while spoiling their enemies, while offering himself a sacrifice. He does those two offices together upon the cross. So our Lord Jesus Christ is the King of Israel. Rejoice then in the presence of God. Trust in the redemption of Christ. Rejoice even over your adversary, the devil. Overcome his minions in the world by faith. Accept no other royal authority to legislate or to judge. Jesus is our King. We have no King but King Jesus. Please turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15. He says, Thou shalt not see evil anymore. Now, this is a very interesting way of speaking. The idea is that you will not experience evil. But he uses one of our senses to refer to all the things by which we experience something Namely, the sight of evil, the seeing of it. You can feel evil. You can be punished. This is physical evil. You can be punished with stripes, for example. That would be to feel the evil. You can hear the agony of people crying out in pain. You can hear evil. But when you see it, it does something to your mind, the vision of the thing. So God says, thou shalt not see evil anymore. You will not experience these sufferings. Our king has begun this good work. He dwells among you. He will complete it until every tear is wiped away and sorrow is banished. Verse 16. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. So let's go through verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. This is the day of Christ's first coming and his second coming. Fear was initially banished then and finally banished at the second coming. Conrad Pelican comments on this verse, When the kingdom of Christ will have been increased with the increase of the Gentiles, and grace is diffused in the hearts of believers, They shall verily have all things happily. Not only will they be able to possess all things without fear of evil, but in consequence they shall be consoled by the word of the Lord, to whom it is said by the gospel of grace that they should not fear. And you can read this if you read the gospel. How many times does our Lord tell people, fear not? Sometimes he'll say, stop fearing. There's a specific construction in the New Testament that says, be not afraid, stop being afraid. Then he'll say, fear not, don't even begin to be afraid. Sometimes he assumes you're afraid already, stop it. Sometimes he assumes later you will become fearful and don't even become fearful. But in either case, it's the same thing. What is it that banishes fear? Jesus Christ is our king. He will remove us from all evil. He will dwell among us. He has cast out our enemy who could do us harm. Fear God and fear nothing else. This is what our Lord tells us. Let us then banish fear by trusting in Christ's protection, in Christ's provision. He is our guardian. He has given us grace in the gospel. He has diffused that grace into our hearts. Let us then banish fear Fear thou not, he says. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. Strong defines this word slack in the Hebrew to mean to sink, to relax, to sink down, to let drop, or even to be disheartened. This is the idea of being slack. When something is tight, a rope is nice and tight, you can touch it and almost hear it like a string on a guitar. And when it's slack, what does it do if you tried to pluck it? It would fall down, wouldn't it? It would sink down. It would drop. So people can be in their hearts and in their minds slack. Here, the hands he refers to, the work. The hand is for the work in the Bible. The thing that you do with your hands is you labor. Don't be slack in your labors, he says. John Diodati, be not discouraged strengthen thyself in faith and perseverance in all duties of thy calling not fearing any harm as may happen to thee you remember the sluggard why is it that he's so lazy what fear isn't it there's a lion in the streets I'll be devoured if I go out there I can't go out and work what does he say when it's time to go plant oh it's raining when it's time to harvest bad weather I can't do this, I can't do that. That's what the sluggard says. Fear. He is afraid. And therefore his hand is what? Slack. God says, fear thou not. And Zion, let not thine hand be slack. Continue in doing the gracious works that I call you to. I note then that the gospel of grace, the banishing of fear by faith, The confidence in Christ's redemption and kingship is a motivation for good works and diligence. The devil says if you believe in Christ that you're justified just by believing in him, that he will banish your enemy, he will overcome your sins, he will cast out your judgments, then you're going to say, I can be lazy because you're not justified by your works, therefore, you'll be slack. God says the opposite. God says, I have overcome your adversaries. I have sent my son. He has cast out the prince of this world. And therefore, fear thou not, and let not thine hands be slack. We are not justified by our works, but by God's grace. But we are justified unto good works. We are saved unto good works. Here God says that very thing. Zion Let not thine hands be slack. Let us then turn gospel grace to good and lawful use. Here's the grace of the gospel. How should we use it? God tells us. Let faith produce works. Let a confident resting in Christ produce diligent works for Christ. William Carey, the great missionary to India, said, expect great things from God, Attempt great things for God. That's what he's saying here. Fear thou not, let not thine hands be slack. Trust in my power to save you, and work diligently for my glory. Our king conquers all before him. He has banished our adversary. He speaks comfort to us. He banishes fear and then says, Occupy till I come. Be about your master's business. Let not thy hands be slack. Do not be a slug. Rather, be diligent. Be careful to do all that I've commanded. Work with skill and with ease in the things and that's what diligence means actually it means to take delight in something to love the thing that you're doing you may not love it in yourself but diligent makes diligence makes no mind it learns to love the task that god sets before it let not thy hands be slack verse 17 the lord thy god in the midst of thee is mighty he will save He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Literally, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee, mighty. He leaves the word is out to impress us with the greatness of the might of God. This word is Gibor in the Hebrew. It means like the great ones of the earth. Nimrod was a great tyrant in the earth or a great hunter in Genesis ten nine. Gideon in Judges six twelve. same word, gibor. Jephthah was a great man. Boaz was a great man. Kish, the father of Saul. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Naaman, the leper. All these are mighty men. Giborim, the great and mighty ones. But all these mighty men are but faint images of the mighty God of Zion, the mighty God of Israel, the Lord Jehovah thy God. He is in the midst of thee, mighty. He has infinite power. How long did Jephthah's judgeship go on? 40 years, maybe? How long did his might last? A little bit of time. How far did it extend? Could he say, let there be light, and there was light? Could he overcome sin and death and hell? No. Our God's power is eternal. His mighty nature goes on forevermore in eternity past, as we say, to eternity future. Does it have limits? No, it is an infinite power. There is no hard or easy to God. Everything is easy to him. He can do exactly what he wants. And God's power is never misdirected. Did Jephthah misdirect his might? Yes, he did. Does God ever misdirect his might? Never, not even once. God's eternal and infinite power is always directed to the proper ends, either of justice in destroying his adversaries or in mercy in saving his people. And that's what he says next. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee, mighty, he will save. There's the first action to console the people of God. You may go into captivity. Your villages may be destroyed. Your crops may be burned. Your children taken as slaves. But console yourself with this thought. God will save you. God will deliver you from your sins. God will deliver you. Perhaps even from the evil, as we saw in chapter 2. There is a hope for you. Should you come back to the Lord, there is some possibility of a reprieve. But even if he does not, he will save. He is mighty to save his people. He also will rejoice over thee with joy, he says. God saves us in such a way that it makes him to delight in us. God is not reluctant once he saves his people to love them. Oh, I wish I could love them, but there's this thing in them that I find fault with. Is that what it says here? He will rejoice over thee with joy. An intense joy. In fact, the word rejoice is merely the verbal form of the noun joy. He will joy over thee with joy, in other words. Please open to Isaiah chapter 62, language very similar to this, page 759, 759 of your pew Bibles. Isaiah 62, we'll read verses 3 through 5, starting there at verse 3. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, that is, Hephzibah, delight, and thy land shall be married. That is, Beulah. It's the, a verbal form of the word Baal. Baal is a husband or a master. Beulah is she who has an husband. She who has come under her, his, the lordship of her husband. Verse 5. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Notice here. Again, As I mentioned earlier, anthropomorphism. God takes upon himself anthropos, the attributes of a man. He's changed to look like a man in Scripture. He rejoices over you with joy. In the same way that you watch a newlywed couple and you say, does that man love his wife? Well, you have no questions, do you? He rejoices over her with joy. He will sing songs to her and look like an idiot while he sings them, but it doesn't matter. He loves her. He sings to her. He fawns over her. Turn over to chapter 65 of Isaiah, where the Lord describes his delight in a similar manner. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying." There shall no more be thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. Notice there, God joying over his people in this new heavens and new earth, in this fully consummated purpose of redemption, God rejoices in his holy city. He rejoices and joys in his people. Now you may read in Matthew chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 the root and ground for this very thing. Page 963. Please, please turn there with me. Why is it that God takes delight in his people? Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, The heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Why does God take delight in sinners? Because he takes delight in his Son. And those who are united to Jesus Christ As the wife is united to her husband, they are blessed and rejoiced over with joy by God himself. God, who is pleased with his son, is pleased with sinners who are united to his son. God takes joy in his people. God delights in his son and those in union with him as his spouse. Amen. Let us delight in this wondrous thought. God takes pleasure in his people. God's mind is moved toward us to do us good. These things, as I mentioned, are attributed to God after the manner of men. But they are more true of God than they are of the fleeting feelings of the bridegroom. The feelings of a bridegroom as life goes on in marriage, what happens to those feelings? They disappear. They might get weak or strong as the time goes by but they're not the same as when you have that first love but God's love does it ever get less not at all not in the least being based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ Being based on God's delight in him, being grounded in their justification through the righteousness of Jesus received by faith alone, God's mind thinks numberless thoughts for our benefit. His will has designed and decreed infinite bliss for his people. Where eternal judgment was the course of nature, he's turned that aside. Put that judgment on him so that the righteousness of Christ might be imputed to us. His wisdom engaged to recover us. Let us then delight and rejoice in God who has rejoiced in us in his son. Let us renew our first love and delight in our Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn back to Zephaniah 3. Zephaniah. Three, page 944 the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty he will save he will rejoice over thee with joy he will rest in his love now this word rest means to be silent to be dumb to be speechless to be even deaf can't hear can't speak This idea can be translated as rest because when you're working, you make noise, and when you rest, you're silent. It means you are resting. You're not doing anything to make noise any longer. God takes delight, so much delight in his people that he'll stop everything else to show his tender cherishing of his church. Matthew Poole notes God will rest not in our love, but note, in his love. Not thy loveliness, but his own love shall satisfy him. God will be pleased with us in his gracious, saving love. Does God rest in his love to us? Let us then rest in his love to us. That's what he rests in, that's where he stops speaking. That's where he takes his whole delight. Let us take delight in it as well. Rest in his love for us, not seek other loves than his. That's what we're saying when we seek the approval of men. I want you to love me. Well, do we need that? If God loves us, if God delights in us, if he rests in his love, let us rest in it as well. Let us not speak of another. Then he goes on. He says... In verse 17 at the end, he will joy over thee with singing. Again, the bridegroom image. Singing songs of love to his bride. God singing songs of love to us. Rejoicing in it. Now you have on the one hand, the silence of God. He rests in his love. He's silent in his love. Here now, is he silent? No, he's singing. And you see, all of these illustrations are not sufficient to tell us all of the greatness of God's infinite love. In fact, God gives us a slow drip, a little picture drawn from human affection so that we may see that this infinite and glorious love of God can be grasped by our minds, though it's beyond grasping. We may understand a sliver of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus His love is silent. His love is singing. His love is high. His love is low. His love is long. His love is wide. It is great to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So great that the mind of man shudders to attempt to describe it. And thus far the explanation of Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 15 through 17.